Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Hi, I'm Bob McAvoy. Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we want to talk about the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Now, we know that people are comprised of body and soul and spirit, and that after we die, our soul and spirit lives on. Until the resurrection day, when the dead shall rise, both the saved and the lost, the saved to be the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, a new heaven and earth, reunited now with their physical bodies, now made like Christ's risen, glorified body. But between our physical death and the resurrection, we are with the Lord. We are in paradise. We shall know each other. We shall have fellowship with each other. And families of every generation will be reunited. That gives us a tremendous hope to look forward to. But the Roman Catholic Church has some very different ideas indeed. They officially believe in a place called purgatory. A place where the Christian goes after death, before they are admitted to heaven. Now, before we can understand purgatory, we need to find out why a Catholic would think it necessary for such a place to exist. We're going to ask the question, how is a Catholic saved? So to understand why Catholics need a doctrine of purgatory, we need to try to understand the difference between the biblical doctrine of salvation and how Catholics believe people are saved, rescued from the eternal consequences of their sin. Like evangelicals, Catholics believe that God created the world and created Adam and Eve as beings perfectly in communion with him. But Adam fell and original sin entered into the world. Catholics believe that all have sinned and therefore cannot enter God's presence. Like evangelicals, they believe that Jesus is God's only begotten Son, sinless and without blame. They believe that he entered into the world and lived a perfect life and died on the cross to bear in his own body the punishment for our sins. Catholics believe that salvation is an act of God's grace. And let me surprise you. They believe that salvation is an act of God's grace alone. So far, so good. So you see, a Catholic can recite the Apostles' Creed and mean every single word of it. Where it gets complicated is in how God's saving grace is applied to the sinner. Whereas the Protestant believes that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, Catholics believe that God's grace is transmitted to us by way of the sacraments and obedience. So God infuses his grace to the sinner at baptism, and the rest of the sinner's life will be a continual reception of grace through a series of good works, 
through communion, mass attendance, confession, marriage, holy orders, and so on. But what if at the end of life, the grace that a Catholic has received through that person's imperfect obedience falls far short of the amount needed to cleanse all of their sins? How then can that Catholic enter into heaven? Because nothing sinful will ever be there. So one Catholic apologist writes, Purification is necessary, because as Scripture teaches, nothing unclean will enter the presence of God in heaven. And while we may die with our mortal sins forgiven, there can still be many impurities in us, especially venal sins, and the temporal punishment due to sins is already forgiven. Now right there is the Catholic dilemma. If salvation is by works righteousness, that is by works of religious righteousness, the sacraments, the good works done in life, then how can we ever know if we have done enough? It was just in this manner that Martin Luther's conscience was so stricken. Luther was riddled with guilt because of his sin, and he was in great dread over his eternal well-being. He asked the question, what if he was to die with this burden of sin still weighing so heavily upon him? He had received all the sacraments of the church. He had entered the monastery. He had observed a rigid monastic life. He had prayed and fasted and did penance. He had crawled up the steps of St. Peter's in Rome until his knees bled, and still he could never escape the terrible burden of guilt. He had sinned, he had broken the law of God, and terrible divine wrath and punishment lay ahead of him. For no matter how much he did, all his efforts to earn God's grace would fall short. Sometimes, actually, I wonder if some modern evangelicals might have the same doubts. Have I said enough prayers? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I given enough tithes? Have I gone the second mile enough? Have I given my all? And so on. Now, as to deal with that dilemma, that the Roman Catholic Church invented the doctrine of purgatory. Well, of course, they would deny that they had invented it. The Catholic Catechism states in question 1030, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So purgatory for the Catholic is the final purification of the Christian to remove any enduring traces of sin that remain at the end of life and to make the Catholic fit for heaven. So we need to ask, is purgatory a comforting doctrine for Catholics?
Okay, this final purification from sin that Catholics will go through after their death is not at all pleasant. Catholics are quick to point out that purgatory is not the same as the punishment reserved for the lost in hell. But they will point out that it is a cleansing fire. The Catholic Catechism again, 1031. The Church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The Church formulated her doctrine of faith in purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the Church, by reference to certain texts of Scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence we understand that certain offences can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. So the Catholic Catechism. Yet for Catholics, they are taught by their clergy and by their literature that the doctrine of purgatory is a most comforting doctrine. William Hendricks in the Reform Commentator writes, The story is told that a certain devout member of the Roman Catholic Church, accepting that death was approaching, exclaimed, O blessed purgatory! Cardinal Gibbons called the doctrine of purgatory a blessed doctrine and writes, I cannot recall any doctrine of the Christian religion more consoling to the human heart than the article of faith which teaches the efficacy of prayers for the faithful departed. It robs death of its sting. Yet Catholics underline their doctrine of purgatory by superstition. Like other Catholic beliefs, traditions of the Church are given equal weight with Scripture and they had attested to by means of superstitious revelations and visions. Among others, purgatory was endorsed by none other than the Virgin Mary herself, apparently, in a vision at Fatima. One Roman Catholic-based website reports, St. Faustina, the Apostle of the Divine Mercy Devotion, revealed in her diary about how her guardian angel took her to purgatory. I saw my guardian angel, who ordered me to follow him. In a moment, I was in a misty place full of fire, in which there was a great crowd of suffering souls. They were praying fervently, but to no avail, for themselves. Only we can come to their aid. The flames which were burning them did not touch me at all. My guardian angel did not leave me for an instant. I asked these souls what their greatest suffering was, and they answered in one voice that their greatest torment was longing for God. Superstition. So let's summarise purgatory. It's a place where the souls of the vast majority of Christians go at death to suffer anguish, and thereby to be gradually purified of any remaining sin and to be made fit to enter heaven, according to the Roman Catholic Church. Again, according to that church, in purgatory, souls pay off the remainder of their debt to God, whatever remains from their earthly life. Again, according to the church, the duration of suffering in purgatory differs for each soul, 
according to the residue sin to be cleansed, and also upon what their relatives and friends on earth are doing on their behalf. That is, for example, offering prayers, buying indulgences, attending masses for the dead. The living must pay for the masses being said for the dead. These payments are made to the local clergy, very often by the sale of mass cards. The Pope has at least some authority over purgatory, it seems, for it is his prerogative to offer indulgences, and those indulgences can shorten the time spent in purification. So the Pope, apparently, by logic, could surely even terminate purgatory and release the souls in it, if he chose to do so. But then we come to paying your way out of purgatory. And that's our next topic. One of the most disturbing aspects of the doctrine of purgatory is the responsibility of the living to secure the release of the souls of the dead from their torment in purgatory. Ian Paisley used to say, the Roman Catholic Church is worse than the taxman, for at least when you die the taxman leaves you alone. The Catholic Church continues to tax you, or rather taxes your relatives on your behalf. The Catholic Catechism again, 1032. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, already mentioned in sacred scripture. The quote is, therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sin. From the beginning, the church has honoured the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them, above all the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God. The Church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Let us help and commemorate them. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. So the Catholic Catechism. Now there are two methods that the Roman Catholic Church uses to pray for the dead and to extract money from those who are doing the praying. Masses for the dead are said on a frequent basis in Roman Catholic churches. Money for the dead changes hands. Prayers for the dead are made, naming the person concerned. Mass cards are sold, candles are sold and lit, and those whose families can afford to have frequent Masses said will spend less time being purified than those with poorer families. And then of course there's indulgences. Pay for an indulgence and get your poor suffering loved one out of the fire of purgatory. It was the proclamation of the indulgence that angered Martin Luther in 1517. Throughout some of the regions of Germany, an indulgence had been proclaimed to raise funds for the completion of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Roland Benton, in his book Here I Stand, writes, 
the instructions given to the indulgent sellers declared that a plenary indulgence had been issued by His Holiness, Pope Leo X, to defray the expenses of remedying the sad state of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and the innumerable martyrs and saints whose bones lay mouldering, subject to constant desecration from rain and hail. Subscribers would enjoy a plenary and perfect remission of all sins. They would be restored to the state of innocence which they enjoyed at baptism, and would be relieved of all the pains of purgatory, including those incurred by an offence to the Divine Majesty. Those securing indulgences on behalf of the dead already in purgatory need not themselves be contrite and confess their sins. Now, is it any wonder Martin Luther was incensed by that? The thought that a person could have their sins forgiven just by paying a sum of money with no conviction of sin and no repentance was repugnant to the man who had learned on his own quest to find peace of heart before God that the justified soul lives by faith and by faith alone. Rome's doctrine of salvation by works was abhorrent to Luther. And I should say it's abhorrent to Scripture. Let's look at the Scriptures. Let's look for a moment at the Catholic proof texts. Does the Bible support the Catholic doctrine of purgatory? In the interests of fairness, I've taken these passages from the New Revised Standard Version, Anglicised Catholic Edition. But the first of those is from the Apocrypha. 2 Maccabees chapter 12 and verse 41 to 46 where it says, So they all blessed the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals the things that are hidden. And they turned to supplication, praying that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened as a result of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of two thousand drachmas of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. And doing this he acted very well and honourably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is led up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore he made atonement for the dead, so that they might be delivered from their sin. That seems clear enough, doesn't it? That certainly justifies purgatory, except that the apocryphal books are not part of the canon of Scripture. They can't be used for an important doctrinal issue such as this. And at a more technical point, this passage is praying for soldiers who had died in the mortal sin of idolatry, whereas the sins that are purified in purgatory in modern Catholicism are venial sins, a distinction between levels of sin found only in Roman Catholicism, and without any biblical basis whatsoever. Let's forget about the Apocrypha for a minute. What about Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18? May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
Catholics say here that Paul is speaking of forgiveness that is available after death. But in fact, the simple meaning of the text is that such a sin will never ever be forgiven at all. Even if the Catholics were right and there was forgiveness available in the age to come, they are still wrong. For the age to come in this passage is after the second coming of Christ, when Catholics think that purgatory will have ceased to exist. So it's a long stretch indeed to think that that passage bears any relevance whatsoever to purgatory. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 15? There Paul writes, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. But if what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Now this is a major proof tax for Catholics who are defending the doctrine of purgatory. Paul seems to be saying that those who have built their life upon ungodliness cannot hide the fact that when they stand before God, the fire will reveal their ungodliness. And such a person can only be ultimately saved through the application of cleansing fire, burning away the dross, that is to say, purgatory. But the context says otherwise. In this passage, Paul is addressing deficiencies in the Christian ministry. Certain people at Corinth had been rallying under the names of great preachers. Some were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and so on. Paul then points out that these men are just servants, through whom the Corinthians have been brought to faith in Christ. They complement each other. They are not rivals. They are builders. And the people are the house that they are building. Paul had laid a foundation, and others are building upon that foundation. And all of those builders are building upon a greater foundation, that of Jesus Christ. But if any of these builders misuse the foundations that have been laid by erecting a substandard house made of wood or hay or straw, then each one of them will be caught on. On Judgment Day, when the rewards for service are being given, they will receive loss, not reward. The passage is not about every Christian needing further cleansing after death. It is about the evaluation of the Christian preacher's work. And that evaluation will happen on the day, the Judgment Day, when according to Catholic doctrine, purgatory will be a thing of the past. Sometimes Catholics quote Hebrews 12 and 29, where it says our God is a consuming fire. So he is. But that verse is about his intrinsic holiness, not about purgatory. So just while we're talking about biblical texts, let's look in the Bible and see why Protestants don't believe in purgatory. Well, it contradicts the biblical doctrine of man. In the Bible, we learn that mankind cannot save himself. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation is God's work alone. Romans chapter 7 and verse 18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. Salvation is the work of God alone. In Psalm 32 verse 1 to 2 Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Going back to the English Standard Version, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 3 verse 4 to 7 but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see how purgatory shifts the work of man's redemption from God to man? According to Roman Catholic Church, I must bear the punishment for my sins in my own torment in purgatory. Unless, of course, in this life, I am able to live such an obedient and sinless life that I perform more good works than I need to cleanse my sin and the surplus can then be carried over into purgatory to alleviate the suffering of the souls there. This whole doctrine of purgatory is a monstrosity, making poor sinners pay the price for their sins, a price that in fact has already been paid on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, the only Saviour. William Hendrickson, the commentator again. He says such a doctrine fails completely to fathom the depth of man's fall. It deprives God of the honour due to him. Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So purgatory contradicts the biblical doctrine of man but it also contradicts the biblical doctrine of Christ because Jesus paid it all. At the cross he exclaimed, it is finished. The saving work was complete and no further sacrifice would ever be required for repentant sinners to enter into heavenly rest. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9 
and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal redemption to all who obey him. He obtained for his people eternal redemption by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So this offering for sin that Christ made at the cross is so extensive that every sin ever committed is blotted out by his own precious blood. Because all of our sins are blotted out by Christ at the cross, why would we need a place called purgatory? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Purgatory contradicts the biblical doctrine of man. Purgatory contradicts the biblical doctrine of Christ. Purgatory contradicts the biblical doctrine of salvation. For salvation is by grace through faith alone and not by our works, whether in this life or after this life has ended. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our sanctification is the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit, preparing us for heaven. Not the work of some imaginary fires in purgatory. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Purgatory contradicts the biblical doctrine of man, the biblical doctrine of Christ, the biblical doctrine of salvation, and the biblical doctrine of the church. When Paul describes the relationship between the church and Christ as a marriage and he likens it to the love that Christ had for his church that redeemed church is seen being presented to him as his bride spotless splendid Ephesians chapter 5 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church pictured by the Catholic Church still needs more work done, not spotless, not without blemish. So the doctrine of purgatory contradicts the biblical doctrine of man, the biblical doctrine of Christ, the biblical doctrine of salvation, the biblical doctrine of the church, and it contradicts the biblical doctrine of the end times. Scripture teaches us that God's purpose for man at the end of time has already been determined. For all those who place their trust in Christ, 
who humbly believe in his saving work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repent of their sins, there is the certain promise of heaven, an eternal home prepared for God's own people. For those who reject the gospel, there is hell, the place of eternal conscious punishment for sin, separated from God. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Simply reading the Bible would teach us that the doctrine of purgatory held by the Roman Catholic Church contradicts the biblical doctrine of man, contradicts the biblical doctrine of Christ, the biblical doctrine of salvation, the biblical doctrine of the church, and the biblical doctrine of the end times. Looking in the Bible, plainly reading the scriptures, teaches us that there is no purgatory. Roman Catholic man. A devout worshipper at the local Catholic church was persuaded to enter the priesthood. He applied for Maynooth and was accepted. He had good next-door neighbours who were Christians, and he told them what he was planning to do. His neighbours told him that they would be praying for him, and before he left they presented to him a Bible, and asked him to make sure that he read it every day. He looked upon this as a kind act by a fellow Christian. Down at Maynooth he began his studies, and in catechism class he learned the doctrine of purgatory. When he came back home at the end of term holidays, he began telling his neighbours about everything that he had learned, and they invited him in for tea, and they warmly spoke to him about what he was learning. He was telling them about catechism classes and the doctrines he was learning, and he mentioned purgatory in particular, as being one of the doctrines covered in that session. His neighbour urged him to read the Bible, and to mark all the passages that spoke of purgatory, and tell him about them, but he couldn't find any. So he went back to his neighbour and he said so. The neighbour offered to help. He says, I'll show you purgatory in the Bible. He turned to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, and he read to the young seminarian, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's purgatory right there, he said, at the cross where Christ purged away all our sins by his own blood and having to finish the work of purging, no more purging required, he has sat down for complete salvation has already been accomplished. The seminarian was puzzled for his professor hadn't mentioned that passage. So when next term started, he asked for a tutorial and he asked the professor to show him purgatory in the Bible. Needless to say, the professor couldn't do so. And when he showed the professor the text in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the professor simply had no answer. That same day, he left the seminary, never to return. The last time I met him, he was testifying in an evangelical church to the saving grace of God in Christ, who redeemed him by God's grace alone, saved him from all his sins, and cleansed him from all unrighteousness. Mm-hmm.